All right, join me in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your blessings in life. We thank you, Father, that you can open your word to us and open our hearts to hear it, Lord. How convicting it is when we realize we are just like the Israelites. We get tested in this wilderness and we grumble and complain and we blame. Lord, please humble us to know that we can trust you and believe that your word is true. If we will follow you and obey you, you will bless us and keep us. And you will see us through the wilderness and we can keep our eyes on that holy land that you have promised us, Lord. We are so grateful for that. Thank you for teaching us about manna. And now help us to see how it applies to your son, the Lord Jesus, and help us to see him more clearly and follow him more readily. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Okay, now you're supposed to open up to what I tell you earlier, John chapter 6. And this time I do want to read some of the uh, scripture for you, okay? I want to give you the setting before we get into the Bread of Life sermon. The setting was this. Jesus is up in Galilee, all right, with his disciples, and uh, he's, he's preaching, and there's this huge crowd listening to him. And uh, then, the, you know, it gets later in the day, and they don't have much food with them, and they start to get hungry, And what does he do? Well, first of all, Andrew brings to him this little boy, this young lad. And he has a lunch, apparently, that his mother packed for him. And it consists of five small barley loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus takes that meager lunch. And what does he do with it? He multiplies it. It's like a creative miracle, um, one that only the creator could do. And he feeds a crowd that consisted of 5,000 men. But we know there were also children like the little lad and there would be the men's wives. So they guesstimate that there were probably at least 15,000 people that he fed with that little lunch of five barley loaves and two fish. And the crowd was so amazed that they called him that prophet referring to the Messiah. It was a messianic term used by Moses in Deuteronomy. And they wanted to crown him king. But he had not gone to the cross yet. So he would not accept the crown without the cross. It was a temptation. And he resisted it fully. It wasn't time for him to be king. Besides, they weren't really looking for a spiritual king. They wanted to make him their political king, to throw off the yoke of Rome. So he resists that temptation, and he goes up into the nearby mountains to be alone and pray, and the sun starts getting even further down in the sky, and his disciples say, well, we're just going to have to leave without him. We need to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee over to Capernaum. So they get in a ship, and they cross, or they're in the middle of the sea, when suddenly a storm hits the sea which can happen as the, the wind comes over the mountains there. Storms can arise just like that. And they're about in the middle of the sea, and they get terrified. Now, they're, they're professional fishermen, fishermen, so you know if they're terrified, it's a serious storm. 
and they're frightened for their lives. And of course, he's up on the mountaintop and he sees everything that's going on. Of course, he knows everything anyway. So he comes down and what does he do to get to them? (laughs) He walks right on the crest of those turbulent waves and they think they're seeing a ghost, a spirit, and it's him. And he comes out to them walking on the water, gets in the ship. And what's interesting when you read the account, as soon as he gets in the ship, boom, it's immediately at the other side. They don't row it across. It's immediately at the other side. And uh, that's all significant, but I can't get into that right now. So anyway, um, when the people that he had fed the the previous day, when they get up in the morning, they start looking for Jesus. And they say, where is he? You know why they're looking for him? It's breakfast time. Really? And they look for him and they can't find him. And they say, well, that's awfully strange because we saw his disciples get in the ship to go to the other side, but he didn't get in with them. So where is he? So there, some other ships had come in after the storm and they get on those. And a, a lot of the people run around the sea. Anyway, they get over to the other side into Capernaum and they find him there. And they, how did you get here <laughs> without a ship? He didn't tell them how he got there because they probably wouldn't have believed him. His disciples knew, but he didn't share that with them. Anyway, that's uh, where we pick up the story when they, when they find him and start talking to him. So let's look at uh, verse 22. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one where into his disciples were entered, and that Jesus was not with his disciples in, in the boat, that his disciples were gone away alone, blah, blah, blah. Let me just, I already told you all this. So let me go down to, um, they ask him, how did he come there? Rabbi, look at the end of verse 25. Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And Jesus answered them and said, verily, verily. And whenever he says verily, verily, what does it mean? Of a truth, of a truth, this is important. Listen up. I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. That's why you're seeking me. Your tummies are hungry again. And then he says, verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you for him, hath God the Father sealed. You notice he just called himself the Son of Man. They all understood that to be a messianic term. Comes from the book of Daniel. They knew he was calling himself the Messiah. Then said they unto him, what shall we do? Man always wants to do something, doesn't he? To earn eternal life. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, here's what you do. You want to know how to get eternal life? Here's what you have to do. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. You know what you do to receive eternal life? You believe on Christ. That's it. That is it. They said, therefore, unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? What doest thou work? Now, that's just ludicrous. That is just an insult. What had he just done the day before? Fed them with that little lunch. And now they want another sign. Verse 31. And here now here's where we tie in with the manna from the Old Testament. They say to Jesus, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, here we go, another verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. That sounds good, doesn't it? It's not. (laughs) Verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. That's the first of seven I am statements Jesus makes in the gospel of John. John. When he says, I am, he's saying, I am, I am that I am. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Okay, move down to verse 41. Oh, this sounds familiar. The Jews then did what? Murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus, therefore, answered and said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. Okay, verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. He repeats it so they get it. (laughs) Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. That sounds pretty weird, doesn't it? Of course, he is speaking symbolically, spiritually, not literally. He's not telling people you have to become a cannibal and drink blood in order to be saved. That would be ridiculous. Look at verse 63. What does he say at the end of this sermon? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. I am not telling you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I am speaking spiritually. He said, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. I go back to verse 54. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All right. Now, our purpose in this whole study is to search for the Lord Jesus in the multitudinous ways that he was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, beginning with the writings of Moses. With the account in Exodus about manna, we are absolutely on solid ground to say, to declare that manna was indeed a type of Christ because he made that claim himself. So there's no doubt about it. When he was on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples who were despondent about the one they thought was the Christ had died, do you think he taught them about manna being a picture of him? Yes, I think he probably included or touched on the fact that manna was a picture of him in the Old Testament. And uh, he made this claim in what is called the Bread of Life Sermon or Discourse of John chapter 6. That sermon was presented the day after he had fed that big crowd with five loaves of bread, manna, and two fish, quail, you know, kind of comparable to feeding them with fish and, and bread. And we are told in Mark six thirty five that where he fed them was a desert place. So you see the similarity? It was like a wilderness. 
That's what the people didn't have any food. Well, I guess they didn't know they were going to be there all day <laughs> listening to him. But he was so intoxicating, they didn't want to leave. And when the sun started going down, they were hungry. Well, so the day after that, that um, multiplied bread wilderness desert miracle, first century wilderness miracle, many of those who had fed, been fed the previous day, as I said, went looking for him. But they went looking for him for the wrong reason. A lot of people might seek Jesus for the wrong reason. You know, a lot of people do. They think if they've got this idea about health, wealth, and welfare kind of a uh, gospel, they might want to seek Jesus because they think that if they get a disease, they'll always be made well, and they'll, if they give money, they'll always be rich, and that just ain't the way it is. <laughs> but there are people that do seek for Jesus for the wrong reason, and because he's omniscient, he knew it, and that's why he was quick to reprimand them with the words, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles. You seek me because you ate. <laughs> and you were full. His serious warning to them concerned their focus, their wrong focus, on the physical, on meat that perishes, when their real need was for meat that endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man could give to them. The people then wanted to know what they got behind already what they could do to get this meat that he was talking about and as i said his answer was simply to believe on him who the father sent well hearing his claim to being the son of man uh, can you look at that real quick okay you saw that one let's go on to, <laughs> um, hearing him claim to be the son of man that caused the people to challenge him with a request, they ask, what sign do you show to us? What sign will you give us so that we can believe you when you tell us you're the son of man? In other words, you're the Messiah. Give us a sign. And, and that is just absolutely ridiculous request. It's actually an insult after what he had just done, which was obviously such a great messianic miracle when he fed the hungry people with that little bitty lunch. Um, and that's why they had even called him that prophet. Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18.15 that there would, one, there would be one that would arise like unto him, like Moses, because he, Moses was also a type of Christ. And he called him that prophet. And ever, all the Jews understood that to be messianic, meaning that he was speaking about the coming Messiah. So um, not only did they refer to him as that prophet, but then they had tried to make him king. So that miracle should have been sufficient, but here they are asking for another sign, another miracle. Do you know that miracles only create a craving for more miracles? Why did Jesus perform miracles? Always it was to um, uh, confirm his message. Which was more important, the message or the miracle? The message, the word of God, the miracle was just to confirm, listen to me, I'm God and you should listen to what I'm, so the day before he performed the miracle, now he's going to give them the message that explains the miracle. Uh, the people had abundant evidence already. They had abundant evidence to believe that he was 
absolutely the promised Savior. But really, they had no desire to submit to him um, spiritually. They didn't want to submit to his authority and his will in the spiritual realm of things. But they would have submitted to him in the political realm. If he had been willing, that's why they want to make him king. If he had been willing to use his great power to set them free from their oppression to Rome, they would have readily gotten behind him, formed an army. This guy's got so much power, he can, we can really be free from Rome. But what they did not sense, unfortunately, very few of them did, was their need to be set free from their yoke to sin, which was much, much, much more important. What they really wanted was a uh, magic genie. Have you seen Aladdin? Oh, it's a good, it's really good. Even, I even got, is he around? I even got Frank to go. It's a good, it was really good. Um, you know, it's a kid's thing. So when you have grandchildren, you do these things. <laughs> I actually enjoyed it. Uh, but they wanted, they wanted um, a lamp that they could rub. And this Jesus would be the, the Jesus genie. And he would supply them with whatever they wanted. You know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, when they got sick. He could heal them, and he could be their king and free them from Rome. That's what they were looking for. Like their ancestors, the uh, hearts of the Jewish people were primarily focused on physical things. That's why they immediately turned the conversation to the dinner table. (laughs) When they say, our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he, and they're speaking there about Moses, As it is written, he, Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. That was in verse 31. So not only were they demanding of Jesus a sign, give us a sign so we can believe you, but now they're dictating what that sign should be. They point to Moses and what they perceived to be a comparable miracle to what Christ had just done the previous day in the feeding of the 5,000. So rather than doing what he told them to do, which was believe on me, they are telling him what to do. We want a sign, and we want it comparable to what Moses did. You get it? Are you following their line of reasoning? So their comparative analysis between Moses and Jesus went along these lines. Uh, If, as you say, as you claim, if you are greater than Moses, if you are the son of man, the promised Messiah, and you say that you are authorized by God the Father to give eternal life, then it stands to reason that you should be able to perform a greater miracle than what Moses performed in the wilderness. And yet, when we think about it, we find that Moses provided our forefathers with bread from heaven, while you only gave us earthly barley cakes. The manna was from heaven. You're giving us earthly food. And Moses fed millions. He fed millions of people daily for how many years? (laughs) 40 years. You've only fed thousands once. 
Now, later on, he's going to feed another big crowd of 4,000, but he hadn't done that yet. But thousands doesn't compare to millions. And one or two times doesn't compare to 40 years. Do you see what they're doing? So they're basically saying, well, your miracle is nice. And, you know, thank you very much. But it's really minor compared to what Moses did. Well, instead of responding to the people in righteous indignation, which he had every right to do, remember how he didn't respond in righteous indignation when they murmured in the wilderness, when he had every right to, when they're complaining about starving to death? It's the same Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't he? Instead of doing that, um, he's, he patiently answers their insults. First of all, he reminds them that it was not Moses who fed their forefathers in the wilderness. Who was it that fed them? God. Actually, it was him. The pre-incarnate Christ fed them. Moses was merely the human instrument, just as the Lord's disciples the day before were the human instruments used to distribute, distribute the multiplied bread into the hands of the hungry people. Second of all, Manna was bread that perished. Remember how the sun came out and it would melt or get full of worms? And it only sustained physical life. It had no power to ward off death. Every, he reminded them, he said, you know, everyone who ate the manna in the wilderness died. They're all gone. They've all perished. But he was offering them the true bread from heaven. And those who receive it will live forever. And by the way, when he uses the term true bread, it does not mean that manna was false bread. That's not what it means at all. At all. Rather, when he says true bread, it is used to signify the fact that he is the fulfillment of all that manna anticipated. True refers to the substance as opposed to the shadow. So the manna was just the shadow of the true substance, which is him. And manna sustained physical life, but he can, what, give eternal life to those who partake of him. Well, third, then he told the uh, people that they were wrong in their assumption that the manna miracle was superior to his bread of life offer. Manna was only for Israel, wasn't it? Only Israel. No other nation received manna. But he is the bread of God who came to give life to the entire world. The entire world. Fourth, manna was food for the body. Just the body alone. But the true bread from heaven is God's provision for the whole man. Body, soul, and spirit. Well, after hearing Christ's words of of John 6, 32 and 33, what do the people cry out? They say, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. This sounds great. This sounds, at first glance, like they got it, and they, they're going to take him up on his offer. We want the bread that you're offering us. But they're still, unfortunately, thinking in physical terms. They wanted the gift, not the giver. They wanted the benefits of the bread, but not the baker. <laughs> And this dialogue between the people and Jesus really reminds us 
It parallels an earlier conversation that he had had in John chapter 4. Anybody know what that chapter's about? A conversation the Lord had with a woman, a Samaritan woman, at a well. And that was when he offered her water springing up within her unto everlasting life that could quench her thirst forever. When she heard that, she also misunderstood that he was speaking physically. And so she said, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. That sounds good. I don't ever have to come out to the well and draw water anymore. Just give me this water. And she's thinking totally physically, of physical water, just as the crowd was thinking of physical bread. The two metaphors used in these similar situations, water in John chapter 6, bread in, I mean, the other way around, John chapter 4, and bread in John chapter 6 are life staple items, aren't they? Can't a person live a long time on just bread and water? We don't want to. (laughs) We miss the garlic and the leeks, right? But we could. Bread and water could sustain uh, a person physically for a long time. Jesus is both. They're, They're great metaphors to picture him. Because he is the bread of life, and he is the living water. And both of those are pictured in the wilderness journey. We have the bread, the manna, and, and our next time when, we meet with, when you meet with me, you're going to have a special conference in October um, with Lois from Rhode Island. You do not want to miss that. It's going to be a fantastic testimony. You've never heard anyone with a testimony like this, I guarantee you. It's amazing. Um, And you're going to go home feeling so blessed for your life compared to what she has gone through. So don't miss it. Um, But I'll be back with you in November. Lord willing, I survived my heart surgery. (laughs) It's not really a surgery. It's a procedure. (laughs) Um, But when we get back, we'll talk about him. The the water that came from the rock, the smitten rock, that's another picture of Christ. And that'll be exciting. Um, So... Anyway, uh, living water and, and bread, those both picture Jesus. The bread of life discourse was a spiritual explanation of the previous day's miracle. He says, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, never thirst. You know, in Greek, that's never, no, never. It's emphatic. It's a double negative, which in English is a positive, but not in Greek. In Greeks, I don't know why the Greeks are so backwards. <laughs> I am Greek. I can say that. I can get away with that. Um, But when it's never, no, never, that means it's really never, never, never. I mean, never will you thirst again. Never will you hunger again. Now, he's not talking about the fact that you won't want breakfast. He's talking spiritually. Your soul will be satisfied. He alone fills that void in your heart, doesn't he? He does. Only Jesus satisfies. And his satisfaction is eternal. Now, why is bread... Such a very appropriate metaphor for the Lord. Let's think about bread. If you were going to use something to describe Jesus, bread is perfect. It's a perfect, well, not perfect in every way, but it comes really close. It's a good, good type of Christ. Because for one thing, bread is a food that is common to all people. I don't care what country, what land, what tribe, what people group you go to. Guess what they eat? Some form of bread. Right? The rich eat bread, the poor eat bread. The young eat bread, the old eat bread. Every race, every people, every tongue group, they all, everybody's 
It's amazing we're not all just obese. We eat so much bread. I love bread, don't you? Especially hot out of the oven, splattered all over with butter, and then put a little jelly on it. Mmm, I love, I mean, and there's so many different types of bread. It's, so bread is a, a basic staple for people all, you know, and Christ is the same. He's, he satisfies all people, doesn't he? Yep, he does. That's why we, he told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We also eat bread. Well, some of us are on the keto diet or whatever it is, but, you know, we can eat bread every day. <laughs> and spiritually speaking, we are supposed to eat bread every day, meaning the word of God. It's a staple food that people don't grow weary of eating. It's difficult to think of eating anything else as much as we eat bread without getting tired of it. Also, as I said, bread is eaten from young age to old age. And the one who has come to know the love, peace, joy, rest, satisfaction of the Savior never wearies of him. I have known him for over 40 years and I have never grown weary of him or partaking of his word, the manna of the word. Have you? No, and we never will throughout eternity. Bread is also a perfect metaphor for Christ in the suffering process that it endures to be made fit to, endure, to maintain life. The grain, whether it's wheat, rye, oat, barley, whatever the grain is, what does it have to have happened first? That was a bad sense, but... Well, yeah, the beating too. But it has to be cut down first, right? Cut down. Jesus would cut down on the cross. It has to be ground into flour. It has to be made into dough, which is then kneaded and pulled on and pushed on before then it is subjected to the fiery process of the oven. The suffering must occur before the bread is ready to be eaten and thereby sustain life. That was also the experience of the true bread of life, wasn't it? that he had to be bruised for our iniquities. He was cut down, and he was subjected to the hot fire of God's wrath on our behalf so that he could freely offer his life to us, which is eternal life. His life is eternal life because he is eternal God. Well, <clears throat> he had gotten sort of that far when a group of religious rulers came up, joined the crowd, and they're called the Jews, and they, uh, and they come in in verse 41. And they overheard him say that he was the son of man who came down from heaven. And they begin to murmur over him because of that statement. Now, the Greek, use, Greek word used for murmuring is exactly the same Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament which is called the Septuagint. Same word, gungusmos. Doesn't that sound like you're murmuring? Gungusmos. <laughs> it's the same word. So what that tells us is there's not a whole lot of change in Israel's attitude toward God since the days of Moses. Same old thing, right? People are the same. Murmur, 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 murmur. That's our specialty. She murmured when she did not have manna to eat. She murmured when she got tired of manna to eat and loathed it. And she even murmured at manna himself, didn't she? Now, the word manna, meaning what is it? 
was essentially the same question that the people asked about Jesus. What is this? You know, they looked at Jesus and watched Jesus, and and basically they said, what is this man? What is this manna? Manna man. (laughs) What is this man claiming? What is this man saying about himself that that, uh, he comes from heaven? What is this man claiming about being God? You know, the father and I are one. What is this? What is this? This is crazy. We know who his parents are. He can't be from heaven. Isn't that the same question they're asking about him? Manna is a great type of Christ. Oh, it's not perfect. It's not complete. But it still is good. Because manna was mysterious to the Israelites, wasn't it? They had never seen anything like it before. And they, they, it was a mystery. It puzzled them. Jesus is still basically a mystery to most Jewish people, isn't he? They don't get it. He's a mystery to everybody who doesn't believe on him. You must believe on him and then your eyes are open. Then you see who he is. But before that, it's like, you know, well, we don't quite get it. How could, he, how could he claim to be God? He was a man. The natural man, that means unsaved man, tries to explain away the mysterious aspect of manna. You know, they try to say, well, it was probably what the Arabs call man and blah, blah, blah. You know, and I've heard, you can read all kinds of explanations. Oh, it's still here. It's still, no, it's not still around. There was nothing like it. It came at a certain period of time. It just fell wherever they were encamped. It didn't fall anywhere else. It stopped the day they entered the promised land. It was unique. So no matter if you want to call it like tapioca pudding or mushrooms, I've had several of you come up and describe, I mean, we can describe what maybe it looked like. My husband kept trying to figure out what it looked like. I said, well, we've never seen anything like it. So it's really, you know, <laughs> it's hard to describe what it was. It's not like anything we've ever seen. Same thing with Jesus. Have you ever seen someone who's 100% man, 100% God? No, only him. He's unique. He's unique. Well, besides the mysterious and supernatural aspects of manna, it anticipated Christ in other ways. In its small size, you know, like coriander seed, small, it represented the humility of Christ. He was equal with God, and yet he put, us, put that aside to become a man, didn't he? The humility of Christ, the small size. It was round in shape, and round like a circle symbolizes eternality, because a circle never ends, does it? Where's the beginning and where's the end of a circle? Anybody know? No beginning, no end. So that pictures, the small size pictures his humanity. The circle pictures his deity. The white color, like bdellium, pictures his purity. Manna was sweet to the taste. It says in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think, uh, I don't remember who it was that said, he, uh, John? And then someone else in the Old Testament tasted the word of God and it was sweet to the taste, isn't it? When you study it, does, isn't it sweet? It is to me every week. It's just sweet, sweet, like hot now, you know, crispy green. Manna came in the darkness of night. It was God's gift, free, gracious gift to a rebellious, murmuring people. Christ, the true manna, came to earth. In a spiritually dark time. 
He too was God's gracious gift, undeserving gracious gift to a rebellious, murmuring people. The children of Israel had to be willing to stoop over in order to pick up the manna. That's a position of humility, isn't it? Uh huh. What's the first beatitude? Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. That means humble. You can't be a proud person and come to Christ. It all the the queen characteristic, beatitude characteristic of the Christian is humility. They also had to receive it. They had to stoop over and they had to receive it into their person in order to benefit it. It was freely and readily available, but they had to receive it, just like we have to receive Christ. When were you born again? There has to be, don't tell me you've always been a Christian because you were not born a Christian. There was a time in your life when you had to receive Christ. You had to mentally, emotionally, every, you know, you just had to say, I am a sinner. There's the poverty of spirit. I need a savior. Jesus saved me. You had to receive him. Do you know when you received him? Now, you might not know the day, but was there a time? I know. I was there. (laughs) The setting, the setting of the wilderness manna was also a prophetic type of the setting when God sent Christ into the world. You know, the incarnation when Christ became man. After having been the blessed recipients of many divine miracles, the plagues of Egypt, when they were spared from the plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, the tree that was cast into the waters of Mara, all those uh, miracles, Israel then arrived in the wilderness of sin where the entire congregation was soon murmuring against Moses saying they wish they had died in Egypt among all the flesh pots of food. It really is difficult to think of a people being more ungrateful than that, isn't it? Hard to think of it. (laughs) But their rebellious attitude pictured exactly what the world was like when the true manna came down from heaven. Same situation. You know, before the first coming of Christ, for the the previous 4,000 years of human history, God had showered his mercies on the undeserving world over and over and over again. But man's response was just like the Israelites in the wilderness. It says, it's summed up in Romans 121 where it says, When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's true. When he came into the world, that's, I mean, their foolish heart. So you look around today, foolish, foolish men. You know, they replace the creator with their own gods and their own selves and all other kinds of things. So other than a, just a, um, I don't know how that got, that's out of place. There's another one. There's a pearl white color of bedellium. Isn't that pretty? Um, that does look a little bit like tapioca. <laughs> but other than a godly remnant, um, Israel at the time of Christ's coming, was no better off than the rest of the world. She should have been, but she wasn't. And yet, rather than sending judgment, God sent the true manna into the wilderness of sin. As I said, that could not be a more fitting term for this world, the wilderness of sin. 
You know what a wilderness is? A wilderness is a uh, desert, (laughs) a desert place. It's a homeless place. There aren't many people that live in a wilderness, except Bedouins. Um, And this world was truly a homeless place for the son of man, the son of God. Think about it. When he came, she had no room for him in her inns when he came at his birth. She had no place for him to lay his head during his earthly ministry. And she had no place for him in his, with his death. You know, he was buried in another man's tomb. So she had no place for him in his birth, his, his life, or his death. She had no room for him in her heart, did she? This world was truly a wilderness place for the true manna, Christ. Back in Exodus 16, remember when we talked about the glory of the Lord? Uh, When they beheld his glory in that pillar of cloud in a special way. That is the first time in the Bible that the term the glory of the Lord is found. First time. It was another pre-planned aspect of the whole manna account as a type of Christ at his first coming. You see, it was not until the incarnation of the true bread of heaven that the glory of the Lord was fully revealed. Think of this. The first time the glory of the Lord is ever talked about in Scripture is with regard to the manna. You know, they beheld the glory of the Lord in that pillar of cloud. The first time in the New Testament we read about the glory of the Lord is at the birth of Christ. You know what, John? It's actually in the first chapter of John. John is the first book in the New Testament. And in the first chapter, what does John say? About the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He said, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten son of the father. So you see the connection again with manna and the true manna. Manna was not a product of this earth. It did not grow on earth's soil. You could not pluck manna off a tree. It didn't grow on a tree like money. (laughs) It didn't grow in the ground. You couldn't pull it up like a carrot. It was not a product of this earth. Nor was it produced by some kind of human concoction. It was a unique gift from heaven, as was Jesus. His origin is not this earth. He is not a product of this world. Uh, I'm getting it. Well, maybe not. I'll go there. Manna was a freely, divinely given gift for the people. It could not be earned. Could you go and earn manna? Could you, could you mow the lawn and get manna as a reward? I don't think there were any lawns in the wilderness, were there? That was a bad example. <laughs> Um, could you buy, could you go to the local Walmart and buy manna? No, there's no way. It wasn't a prize to be won either. It was a freely given gift. It was a sign of God's grace and love as was his gift of his son. Now, something not told here in the Exodus account about manna is found over in Numbers 11, verse 9, which tells us that manna actually fell upon the dew of the ground, not upon the dust of the ground. And I'm sure if there's one thing that you find a lot of in the wilderness, it would be dust, (laughs) dirt, dust, sand. 
But it didn't fall on the dust. It fell on the dew. Man was made of the dust of the ground. But Jesus did not share man's corrupt nature, even though he was 100% man. He didn't share man's sin nature. He did not belong to the dust of this earth. What happened when he was incarnated? Well, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and the power of the highest overshadowed her so that she had a virgin conception, not a virgin birth, a virgin conception. The true bread of life came into this wilderness earth just like the dew. He, he was kept pure and clean from the dust, the dirt of this earth. Isn't that a pretty picture? Shake your heads. No, nod your heads. Don't shake your heads. Nod your heads. Furthermore, uh, manna, remember, was preserved on the Sabbath. It did not corrupt on the Sabbath, did it? It was preserved. Neither did the Lord Jesus suffer corruption on the Sabbaths following his death. His body would, did not suffer corruption in the tomb, did it? On the Sabbath. Actually, I believe there were two Sabbaths because I believe he was crucified on Thursday. And I have a whole lesson on that if you want to get it. Um, the next day after Thursday was a high high day Sabbath and then Saturday was the regular weekly Sabbath that's the only way you can get three days and three nights in the belly of the earth but that's another story um, but his body did not suffer corruption he was kept because the holy one could not see corruption he never had sin so he he would never corrupt he would not decay in the tomb tells us that in Psalm sixteen ten, and Stephen repeated it by the way. Well, manna was also laid up before the Lord. When we come to the end of chapter 16 of Exodus, we read about that, how Aaron was told to put a pot, um, an omer of manna in a golden pot, and it was preserved and laid up before the Lord in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. Same thing as the Lord Jesus. The true manna, he was preserved in his tomb, well, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And he was presented before his father in the holy of holies of the heavenly tabernacle. You know, the earthly tabernacle was made after the true pattern of the real tabernacle in heaven. Psalm seventy-eight twenty-five tells us, uh, I thought I had one here about the, where was that? The two names. Why, I didn't have that in order. Where's the one about the corn of it? Oh, that was in the first lesson, wasn't it? Ah, this is fun. <laughs> click, 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 click. It's like my kids with the remote. Do you know how much our little two-year-old granddaughter, she knows how to ha do the remote. And when she saw my smartphone, I'm still learning how to operate that thing. She took the smartphone, I can't believe it, and she started swiping it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> A completely different generation. Mm. All right. Well, I, I don't know where I was. We'll stay right there. Okay. Um, it, it, back in uh, Psalm 78, it's called angel's food. I wanted to tell you about that. I'm almost done. Manna, remember, manna pictures Christ and it pictures the word. 
the written word and the living word. So the name angel's food tells us that the Lord and his word not only feels this, feeds the souls of his people here on earth, but it satisfies celestial beings. You know, the chief delight of the holy angels is to feast on Christ. They feast on Christ now and they'll feast on him. They love his word. They love him and they love his word like we do. Probably even more (laughs) than we do yet. Um, But they serve him. They glorify him. They proclaim his praises and they will never, ever, ever grow weary of the true manna. As neither will we. Well, there's one final, I want to exhaust every place manna is mentioned in the scripture. So there's one more time manna is mentioned in the scripture, and it is in the book of Revelation. In the Lord's letter to the church of Pergamos, you know, in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the Lord wrote seven letters to seven churches. Well, in the church letter to Pergamos, he said this. He said, to him that overcometh, who is the person that overcomes? Right, believers. It's, it says, actually says in uh, John 5, 1 John 5, 5, who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So an overcomer is a believer in Jesus. So his promise in the church letter to Pergamos is, to him that overcometh will I give you to eat of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. What is that talking about? Well, during the church age, anybody see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? No, because where is he? Right now. Yeah, he's hidden. He's hidden in our heart. He's also hidden in heaven. He's not here in the church age. He's hidden. However, we as believers, overcomers, we feast. Our reward is that we can feast on the hidden Christ even now, today. Isn't that exactly what we're doing right now? We're feasting on him, learning more about him through his word the double manna. We're feasting on him and we will feast on him forever in the promised land of heaven. So when Jesus finished talking about the father's way to receive eternal life, which was by placing faith in him, uh, who would give his flesh for them, you know, and his blood, they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. When When he said all that, the Jews turned from murmuring to striving now they were mad and they said you know how dare he say that the people didn't understand but there was disagreement among the crowd and the jews about what he meant they did not understand how he could talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood because they were taking his words literally instead of spiritually you know there's sometimes in the word of god you take it literally sometimes you have to understand to take it spiritually You know, it's a context. He's not going to tell Jewish people to drink blood. It says in Leviticus, you know, that's that's a pagans. That's that's an abomination. Who drinks blood? Uh, Dracula? (laughs) Satan worshippers? Yeah, obviously he's not telling them to drink blood. That's just dumb. But so they don't they don't know what he's talking about. They don't get it. Um, Some claimed he was insane, and that he should be stoned to death for blasphemy. Others thought he was teaching some kind of a a paganistic, cannibalistic religion. 
Now, a few probably understood that he was speaking symbolically, especially his apostles, because they were getting, starting to get a hint that he doesn't always say what he, you know, what we think he means. (laughs) He's speaking on a different level. But they still are confused about his exact meaning. What nobody understood is that he spoke about the... um, the sacrificial atonement that he was going to accomplish by giving himself on the cross when he would break, you know, break the bread. His body would be broken for us and he would shed his blood for us. They didn't understand that he would give himself for the sins of the world. They didn't understand that the Messiah had to first be a suffering servant before he ever reigned as king. And that was the whole message he was trying to get across to those two on the road to Emmaus, wasn't he? When they were so despondent about, oh, we thought Jesus was the one and he was crucified, he suffered and died, and so he, we must have been wrong. And he started at the books of Moses and began to explain how ought not the Christ to have suffered before entering into his glory? Been taught that way all through the Old Testament and they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And it was sad because if you look at 666, I can always remember that address, 666. If you look at John 666, it tells us that um, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. How sad. His apostles stayed, but most of his former disciples left because they just didn't get it. They were taking him literally instead of spiritually. And there are millions of people today in this world, sadly, who take this sermon literally instead of spiritually. And they think they're receiving Christ when they take a mass or bread or a wafer. It's not, that's not how you receive Christ. You invite him into your heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the true manna that you sent down from heaven, even your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how we as believers, as overcomers, can even now, today, even though he's hidden in heaven, we can feast on him, the hidden manna. The world doesn't see him. The world doesn't understand him. The world is still looking at Jesus and his word and saying, what is this? I don't get it. They're still scratching their heads. So, Father, I just ask that we could truly be witnesses to the lost around us, that we could answer that question, what is this, and explain to them who you are and how mighty to save you are. We ask that your spirit would draw those in our families who might yet be lost without you, Father, please bring them to yourself before it's eternally too late. And now I ask, Father, that you would go with each and every woman here and bless her, keep her from the evil one. Give us this day our daily bread. Keep us from murmuring and grumbling and complaining. And remember that when we do, we're really complaining against you. And we don't want to do that. Help us control our tongues and our hearts and our attitudes and to trust you fully. We love you, Jesus. And we do ask these things in your blessed name. Amen. Amen.